All right. Welcome back, y'all, to another episode of the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangeness, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. I am your host and resident nerd, Aaron. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out the Substack. There we have show notes for each episode that contain relevant links to papers and articles used in research for the episode, as well as links to my metaphysical newsletter, The Moonbeam Mirror. I also want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends so we can build a community of weirdos together. I was hoping this week to bring you a new audio experience, but I couldn't get the software to work for me, so here we are. If I could do a podcast in handwritten form, I swear I would. Technology and I have a very tense relationship. Um, actually, just this week, I had to buy a new phone because I dropped my phone trying to catch my key holder that fell off the wall while I was putting my keys up. It was a whole experience, but now I have a larger phone with 5G and a kickstand, so I suppose I am moving up in the world. Hopefully next week, I will have remedied some of my boomer tech issues because I do want to keep making this podcast better. All of the research is something I would honestly be doing anyway. This is just a way for me to share what I've learned so it doesn't get wasted on me alone, but I am having to learn how to be a proper millennial in the process, and I really dislike accepting mediocrity as the status quo. So hopefully we'll just keep getting better. This week I wanted to study Atlantis. Now I am under no aspersions that I'm going to solve in a week what people have been trying to solve for millennia. I've got an ego on me, but even I have my limits. Instead, I just want to see if we can learn something new. Um, Because of the mythos of Atlantis, it is kind of hard to separate history from legend. Even Aristotle actually thought that Atlantis probably wasn't real. And to some extent, I think that perspective has merits, though Plato is generally a reliable source. I mean, it's not like uh, Homer or um, something like that, where you genuinely are working with a poem um, that has a lot of literary license to it. Uh, Plato is is more philosophical than literary. Um, But for one, you do have Atlantis being defeated by the Athenians, which harkens back to the contest between Poseidon and Athena for patronage of Athens, um, where Poseidon brought forth a spring and Athena brought forth the olive tree. Again, here we have Athena defeating Poseidon as the Athenians defeat the Atlanteans. I also think it's funny that I'm recording this from a state that has an Americus south of Atlanta, which is west of Athens. Uh, someone give us some pillars of Hercules in an earthquake and we can be the Atlantis myth all by ourselves. Um, and then, of course, let's not forget the formative Disney movie for all us millennials. That was part 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea, part The Mummy, part Flash Gordon, and definitely made me aspire to be a cross between Milo Thatch and Vinny Santorini, who was the demolition expert. But is there any historical merit to the myth? That's what I want to investigate. And I do think that you have to start on the assumption that it is completely historical and work backward from there if you're going to make heads from tails of this mystery. Again, like I do with all of my episodes, I try to avoid jumping to any supernatural or um, uh, metaphorical or anything like that type of um, explanations before doing the literal just because it's easier to um, disprove than it is to prove. So... 
As far as our records go, Atlantis is first referenced by Plato in his dialogues Timaeus and Critias, though he indicates the legends came out of Egypt. Plato's timeline puts the Atlantis story at a roughly 9,000 years before the birth of Solon, which was 2,652 years ago in 630 BC. So that puts Atlantis roughly 11,600 years ago, around the tail end of the Younger Dryas event. Now, Plato's description of Atlantis from Timaeus is as follows. Many great and wonderful deeds are recorded of your state in our histories, but one of them exceeds all the rest in greatness and valor. For these histories tell of a mighty power, which unprovoked made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable. And there was an island situated in front of the straits by which, ooh, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. The island was larger than Libya and Asia put together and was the way to other islands. And from these you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent, which surrounded the true ocean. For this sea, which is within the Straits of Heracles, is only a harbor, having a narrow entrance, but that other is a real sea and the surrounding land may be most truly called a boundless continent. Now in this island of Atlantis, there was a great and wonderful empire, which had rule over the whole island and several others, and other parts of Atlantis, oh, uh, over parts of the continent. And furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. This vast power, gathered into one, endeavored to subdue at a blow our country and yours and the whole of the region within the straits. And then, Solon, your country shone forth in the excellence of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill and was the leader of the Hellenes. And when the rest fell off from her, being compelled to stand alone after having undergone the very extremity of danger, she defeated in triumph over the invaders and preserved from slavery those who were not yet subjugated and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwell within the pillars. But afterwards there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and in a single day and night of misfortune all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the island. So based on these descriptions, um, Timaeus being the shorter one and then Critias slightly longer with more description of the city structure itself, several theories have emerged over the years, including some as loose in interpretation as to put Atlantis in Australia. This, to me, is as good as saying Atlantis did not exist, because we are clearly supposed to be working within the Greek and Egyptian framework. The vast majority of theories, though, deal with the northern Atlantic Ocean, the area of the globe which is in front of the Straits of Gibraltar, known poetically as the Pillars of Heracles. Now, um, 17th century German polymath Athanasius Kircher created a famous map of Atlantis in his text Mundus Subterraneus, and he provided a description of Atlantis as well. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an English translation that didn't cost more than I already wanted to spend this week, having 
put out a fair penny for the new phone. Um, but an image no- needs no translation, and Kircher's dis- depiction was supposedly based on Egyptian maps of Atlantis. Unfortunately, we cannot corroborate that it was based on Egyptian maps because we do not have those Egyptian maps, so we do need to take it with certain grains of salt. Some have proposed Greenland based on the Kircher map, and to be honest, this is where I was sitting before this week based on his map. Um, But almost immediately into my research, I really started to doubt myself on that. Plato clearly says that Atlantis is in front of the pillars, which Greenland is not, not even on the flat earth map. Greenland being in front of the pillars only works if the pillars of Heracles are at the entrance to the Baltic Sea instead of the Mediterranean. I did check that, by the way, and scholars seem pretty adamant that the pillars of Heracles are in fact the Straits of Gibraltar even though they can't agree on which mountain is the southern southern pillar. Obviously, the Rock of Gibraltar is the northern pillar. But it does make sense that the, um, that the pillars of Heracles would be at Gibraltar. Why would Plato be describing the Baltic Sea when he was talking about himself as living within the pillars? But I did check anyway, just in case. It's possible that in front of the pillars isn't so literal a description, or at least it's something we should consider. If you wanted to get to North America, it's not so crazy to think that you might swing north, except it kind of is. As it turns out, the currents at the mouth of the Mediterranean actually flow south down the coast of Africa and then across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, which is probably why Columbus ended up in Hispaniola. The idea that you would go against the current north to Greenland on your way to America seems doubtful. In addition, the Hiawatha crater that many were thinking was 13,000 years old and would be directly or at least relatively close um, in time related to this incident was actually recently dated to 58 million years ago. So we kind of lose that obvious impact event on Greenland Greenland that was on a similar timeline to Atlantis. Um, Of course, that's assuming you believe the research. Take that with grains of salt also. Um, But it does seem that the vast majority of the super smart people studying this believe that the Azores are the location of Atlantis, including Randall Carlson, Ignatius Donnelly, and Kircher himself. I have not been fully convinced by this theory, but I do agree that they fit many of the aspects of this description. I just have issues syncing up the Atlantis research with the modern scholarship on the Azores. But again, like I just said, I'm not one to particularly hold... Um, modern scholarship on a huge pedestal. So the Azores are an island chain almost directly due west of Gibraltar, right in line with Plato's description, but there is no shallow continental shelf beneath them. For example, um, if you've ever watched Wicked Tuna, which I actually enjoy um, as a way to wind down, there are certain ledges that they talk about, like Jeffrey's Ledge and Stellwagen Bank. Those are shallow um, shallow flat parts that are just right under the water, a couple hundred feet. And so that is almost what you would be expecting to look for with Atlantis. You don't have that in the Azores. Um, the, the islands of the Azores are actually peaks of mountains in the mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is a divergent plate boundary that runs down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Even if the oceans were 400 feet lower, as was believed to be the case 12 to 13,000 years ago, the Azores would still just be a tiny island chain. When you hear about the Azores Plateau being that flat part, 
that that is like 6,000 feet deep, right? So 400 feet and 6,000 feet, very different numbers. And I just have trouble reconciling the two, to be honest. We know that the Mid-Atlantic Ridge itself can't swallow an island. First of all, while earthquakes are common as the tectonic plates move, the plates are only moving centimeters at a time. And second of all, we have an example of an island on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Iceland is on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And where the ridge is separating, it actually has a split in its rocks that keeps diverging. So we wouldn't expect to have an island swallowed by the ridge. We would expect to have an island split by the ridge. With all of that being said, though, Randall Carlson has collected and presented some very interesting research that suggests that there is a lot more going on at the Azores than just horizontal separation of the tectonic plates. There appears to be vertical movement as well. And there appears to be radiocarbon evidence of stones on the Azores Plateau 6,000 feet below water that were above water 12,000 years ago. Randall has said that these studies are being intentionally ignored by the mainstream. As I hinted at before, I'm certainly not opposed to that idea. Um, I just would like to see a little bit more evidence. Randall did a whole series of episodes at the very beginning of his podcast, Cosmographia, that go in depth on the geology and the research that he's uncovered um, as he's been studying this for my whole lifetime, essentially. And I highly recommend listening to him explain it if you want more information on the geological evidence for the Azores. Um, But based on the information available, it does seem that if there is a literal location for Atlantis, that the Azores would be the most likely location that aligns with Plato's description. Since no one has definitively solved the puzzle in a couple thousand years, though, perhaps we need to admit that we have been thinking about this incorrectly. Perhaps some of the parts that seem literal are actually metaphors for something else. Um, Not a fictional story entirely, but just poetic license. um, Plato himself is not necessarily a very literary character, but he is getting this like third or fourth person. So it could be that some of that was uh, metaphorical along the way. But we need to think of this perhaps as a Indiana Jones treasure map. You're not looking for a literal 10,000-year-old tiger, but rather a rock that looks like a tiger or something of that sort, right? I know Randall Carlson, for example, does a lot of geological research. He reads a lot of scientific papers, and his strength is going to be in looking at the Atlantean mythos literally. I am a huge fan of Randall's work, not least of which because he is a fellow Georgian, but I personally am not strong at geology. Rocks are really not my jam. I'm not even that into crystals. Um, I do have some, but not like as many as some people, which probably makes me a really bad hippie, but whatever. My strength throughout really my entire life is out of the box thinking. So that's what I'm going to try to apply here for better or worse. It's a thought experiment, right? The first thing I want to address is that the Atlantic was impassable because of a shoal of mud where the island receded below the waters. So that just didn't, it didn't really sit with me. It didn't make sense to me. Did the island only sink 10 feet under the water? I mean, how big are these boats that are trying to cross this? But what if it was less actual mud and more like molasses in January? 
Researchers have used the protactinium to thorium ratio in the sediments of the North Atlantic to determine that the relative speed of the North Atlantic currents across various times in history is not constant, right? So interestingly, what they found is that around the time of the Younger Dryas, the currents came to a screeching halt. The theory is that there was significant glacial melt, which threw off the currents, replacing the warm water that should have moved north from the Caribbean. And this would be the kind of massive water dump that may also have sunk an island. In fact, around 11,600 years ago, there was a sea level change associated with the end of the Younger Dryas, known as Meltwater Pulse 1B, where sea levels rose around 28 meters or 90 feet just in that period alone. Based on the science and the timeline, it seems reasonable that they could have been an island or portion of the Azores lost under the rising seas, and the ocean could have become impenetrable due to those loss of currents. So if you were trying to cross the Atlantic Ocean after having lost those currents that you would have otherwise depended on, it seemed maybe like you were crossing a shoal of mud, but you weren't literally crossing a shoal of mud. And then what other out-of-the-box thinking can we apply to this legend? Well, let's look at the name Atlantis. Atlantis comes from the name Atlas, who was supposedly the first king of Atlantis. Atlas was also a titan in Greek mythology. He's often depicted holding up the globe, but he was actually doomed to hold up the sky or the heavens. Well, we also know this legend came out of Egypt, and the Greeks were fantastic at syncretizing their gods and the Egyptian gods, to the point that most people know the Greek names for the Egyptian gods and cities and not the actual Egyptian names, including Egyptologists. So then who is the Egyptian god that holds up the sky? Well, that would be Shu. Also, in the Greek version, King Atlas is the son of Poseidon, one of ten sons of Poseidon, actually. This would probably not have been in the original Egyptian version as the Egyptians, a Nile-based agricultural culture, didn't have a prominent sea god in the ways that the Greeks, a more seafaring culture, did. My thought here is that Poseidon was added to mimic the Poseidon-Athena battle that we talked about earlier, seen in the myth of the patronage of Athens, um, but that this was not actually under the original Egyptian myth. That is something that I would still need to research further, but that's my thought. Shu, though, is a character we can absolutely explore, so let's see what we can find. Interestingly, Shu, in Egyptian, in addition to being the name of the god, also means light or dryness, which makes sense. Presumably, if you're holding up the heavens, you are air, you are wind, you are the medium through which light shines. So when Atlantis fell beneath the deep, dark oceans, Atlas, aka Shu's kingdom, was conquered by getting rid of both its light and its dryness. So we may be looking at a confluence of literal younger dryas-related events, along with a metaphorical description based on Shu's characteristics. At the very least, it's a layer of metaphor that we should consider. It's also worth noting that Shu was connected to Ma'at, the Egyptian notion of divine goodness, which incorporated truth and order, among other notions. The feather of Ma'at glyph is actually pronounced shu. 
So an overthrow of the kingdom of Shu would be an overthrow of Ma'at. The chaos of the weather changes coming out of the younger Dryas would have felt like there was chaos where there used to be order. So this could be a metaphorical description of those weather changes. We should also consider the possibility that the civilization of Atlantis and any other interdiluvian civilizations didn't perish because of a Mount Vesuvius slash Pompeii-like instantaneous event, but rather because they couldn't adapt to weather changes. I know the Inuit peoples in northern Canada have to eat or had to eat a much heavier fat diet than even the First Nations in southern Canada to deal with the colder, more extreme climate. Maybe the Atlanteans couldn't adapt their agricultural practices fast enough to survive. Um, It's not something that's necessarily described in Plato's account because he does talk about it disappearing under the sea. But we don't know exactly how long that would have taken, right? I mean, he makes it seem that it was overnight, but metaphorical time is not always literal time. The seismic activity possible at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge could also cause um, tsunamis that could quickly destroy a coastal civilization. So that's something to consider. I know that in the Atlantean um, or Atlantis Disney movie that they show more of like a tsunami situation coming in. But a tsunami doesn't have to completely sink an island forever. So that's something to consider as well. Shu and his consort Tefnut were the first couple of the Ennead, the Nine, of Heliopolis, which is one of the Egyptian pantheons. Um, There are several pantheons within Egyptian history. We have to remember that ancient Egypt was around for significantly longer than the Greeks, for example. And their, their culture and religion and all of that changed over time and according to the area of Egypt that you were in. In Heliopolis, we have Atun being the primordial self-begotten god, and he created Shu and Tefnut, who gave birth to Geb and Nut, who gave birth to Set and Nephthys, as well as Osiris and Isis. The Ennead sometimes is expanded to include the son of Osiris and Isis, Horus. Um, So I guess in that case, it wouldn't be an Ennead, it would be a Teniad or something like that. (laughs) The interesting thing is that Shu and Tefnut are represented as lions. The astrological sign of Leo is associated with the sun and Shu is associated with the sun. Shu's link to the divine goodness of Ma'at is also representative of the, the peace, the goodness, the prosperity of the age of Leo per the mythology. And by the age of Leo, I do mean the golden age. So what happens if we apply the zodiacal ages onto the Ennead? Well, let's say that Shu and Tefnut are the rulers of the age of Leo. That puts Geb and Nut as the rulers of the age of Cancer. Cancer is the sign of the mother. And generally, we do think of Mother Earth. um, But in this pantheon, Geb, which is the male of the pair, is the one that's associated with Earth. But we still do have an Earth and a mother connection. It's loose, but it's there. I don't think Geb and Nut are ever pictured as crabs, though that would be hilarious. Then we have the next generation being the rulers of the age of Gemini. Gemini is the sign of the twins. And here, instead of we having the one male-female pair that we have with Shu and Tefnut, and then in the next generation with Geb and Nut, here we have two male-female pairs. Gemini is also ruled by the planet Mercury, 
And Osiris is the mercurial death and rebirth figure in Egyptian mythology. So we do have a connection in that generation as well. That puts Horus as the ruler of the age of Taurus, which would have been the present age at the time that most of these ancient Egyptian texts were written. And these texts do honor Horus as the Great One. Horus himself is not depicted as like an apis bull, but his consort Hathor is depicted as a cow. So there is Taurus bull imagery there as well. So to me, this absolutely aligns as another layer to this story. Because then also, when was the age of Leo? Well, estimates vary based on the different schools of astrology. I personally favor using the actual locations and sizes of the constellations in the sky. Crazy to think that if you're going to look at planets, you should actually look at planets. But hey, when I calculate out the age of Leo, I get it beginning around 10,775 BC and ending around 8,000 BC with a peak around 9,400 BC. 9400 BC is extremely close to our 11,600 year timeline for Atlantis. So the toppling of Atlantis is not necessarily the end of the Age of Leo, but is representative of the peak and then the subsequent, subsequent downfall of the Age of Leo that would have happened. The Ennead are also interesting because of their roles and birth order. These roughly translate to the biblical creation story. Though this isn't surprising because, as we've covered previously in this podcast, the Hebrews weren't the slaves of the Egyptians. They were the Egyptians. And the Bible is the story of the Egyptian royal family. A fun thought could also be that the pillars aren't actually the pillars of Heracles, but rather other pillars. And Plato was mistaken. In Egyptian mythology, the cardinal points as known are known as the pillars of Shu, Perhaps the pillars of Plato are the ends of the known Earth, and Atlantis existed beyond the Antarctic Wall on the Flat Earth map. I don't personally believe in Flat Earth, and there's no way to go about verifying this, but it is valuable as a thought experiment. Like your quads or your abs or even your heart, your imagination is a muscle that must be exercised so that it does not atrophy. And so that is what we are doing. Um, the pillars of Shu aren't the only pillars in Egypt either. Heliopolis or Yunu in Egyptian, or perhaps Anu, I'm not great with Egyptian pronunciation, is the city of the pillars. What if the Egyptian priest just said the pillars and Solon assumed it was the pillars of Heracles? Or maybe the Greeks are the ones that have the wrong pillars of Heracles. As it turns out, ancient Greek historian Herodotus, who predated Plato by about 60 years, not only said that Heracles was originally an Egyptian god of their most important pantheon that was then adopted into Greek mythology, but also identified Heracles as Shu, which makes sense. The pillars of Heracles hold up the sky. The pillars of Shu help him hold up the sky. But that means that Plato who would have known about Herodotus's work before using the terminology of the Pillars of Heracles, may have been using it to send a different message. After all of this study, I have to say, I believe Atlantis is more real than ever. 
But I also have to say that I think looking in the Azores or any other physical location is going to be a waste of time. While there may have been cataclysms that sunk islands around 9600 BC, I believe more than anything that the legend of Atlantis is code for the fall of the age of Leo, the golden age. And I believe that the more we study Atlantis through the lens of Egyptian mythology and ancient cosmology, the more the layers of Atlantean knowledge will reveal themselves to us. That's going to wrap it up for this week's episode. If you have any thoughts or resources that you want to share, please leave a comment on the Substack post. I would love to hear your thoughts on the matter and continue the conversation. Until next time, in the immortal words of Euripides, question everything, learn something, answer nothing. I'll see you next week.